What's up, everyone? Hope you're all very safe and healthy at home during these unpredictable times. Many thanks to the essential workers and healthcare providers that are possibly getting exposed to COVID-19. These people recognize the risks, but are compelled to maintain the order of society by stocking grocery store shelves, delivering packages, interacting with patients, and enforcing public safety. We should also appreciate the researchers, scientists, and policymakers that are working day and night to come up with solutions to the many problems caused by this pandemic. Episode 61 is about decentralized identity, and our guest is Karsten Steiker, who shared many different aspects of digital identity technologies during this podcast. Karsten is a very insightful business leader and technologist who is also a trained physicist. We talk about a variety of blockchain-based ecosystems related to self-sovereign identity, and also concepts like the digital twin. His company, Sphirity, is based in Berlin, Germany, and were recently part of a government-sponsored hackathon where they built a solution called eReceipt to digitally prove a patient's identity when getting a prescription. I really enjoyed this conversation with Karsten, and I hope you do too. If you're looking for a way to get weekly industry news highlights in the blockchain healthcare space, I suggest you subscribe to Robert Miller's newsletter on bert.substack.com. A link to the newsletter is in the show notes. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I will be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome back to Health Unchained. Today's guest is Karsten Stoiker, founder and CEO of Sferity, which is building a blockchain and cloud-based identity solution. Karsten is a technology entrepreneur. He serves as a council member of the Global Future Network for the World Economic Forum, and he has a PhD in physics. Karsten, welcome to the show. Tell us where you're calling us from. Yeah, thanks, Ray, for having me on your show. And yeah, I'm a physicist. I live in Germany, and um, I have a long, longer-term career in IT. I basically started my career with the German Aerospace Center, which is a mini version of the NASA. Then I joined Accenture, spent 13 years on doing large-scale system integration projects across industry. So I gathered a bit of domain knowledge in pharmaceutical, energy, and financial services. And then I started working for utility, ended up in an innovation hub, got kind of infected by artificial intelligence, modern cryptography, and blockchain, and then I founded Spirity. That's awesome. So with Spirity, I know that right now you're working on a use case in healthcare. So I'm kind of interested in how you um, started your career and then what made you transition over into the healthcare space. Yeah, so I personally got in touch with blockchain by coincidence end of 2014, so pretty early. So when I worked at the utility, 
and um, one of the board members basically asked the questions, hey, let's invent the Uber for energy. So everyone wants to head, it's, it's Uber for something. And um, by coincidence, this was a board member from uh, the Netherlands. Then this board member asked a freelancer out of the, let's say, the freelance ecosystem, the broader ecosystem in the Netherlands. And uh, let's let's remember what happens in 2014. So Vitalik Buterin published his Ethereum white, white paper. And um, then he decided to deploy development teams for the Go client in Amsterdam. Then for the C++ client, Ethereum client in Berlin, and it's quite a big coincidence because yeah, why is this coincidence? We got in touch with the Ethereum ecosystem in Amsterdam. One of the guys proposed, hey, um, why do we need an Uber for energy? Let's try to take out the man, uh, the, the middleman and let's do a decentralized smart contract um, Uber for energy. And from this point in time, I got in touch with, uh, with blockchain, a combination of blockchain and IoT and um, a lot of cryptography and then we started doing a lot of research on kind of let's say where can blockchain be applied across different industries and in the end we looked in a lot of use cases identity was in all these use cases and then we found it's verity to especially focus on decentralized identity because when people do their digital transformation they have to sort out digital identity first Mm-hmm. And that's, we said, okay, that's fantastic. Let's go into this. And we started um, monitoring because who knows where is blockchain decentralized identity being really picking up, being deployed in productive field tests, being deployed into production, really scaled. Who knows in which industries this will happen. And so at Sverity, we basic we didn't have, let's say, a clear product market fit or clear focus on a specific niche. We said, let's check out which industries adopted first. And we did a lot of piloting and prototyping. And then we got in touch with people we knew from Novartis, one of the big pharmaceuticals um, yeah, globally, but also especially in, in Europe. Um, we got in touch with people who also spent a lot of time analyzing their entire supply chain. So where does blockchain play a role? And yeah, wow. then Novartis, it's probably also interesting to mention because they, they, they had, let's say, kind of priority for 2020. And 2020 for them is the year of bringing blockchain into production, into the real business. And that's, I think, right now the place to be. Um, to work with a customer who understands technology, who has a business case, and who brings a complete ecosystem. And that's that's one of the reasons why, why we work pharmaceutical. The other reason is um, when you look into kind of blockchain, you can build from Greenfield a lot of fancy stuff. But if you would like to solve today problems in terms of audit trails, verifiability, GXP, and kind of things, then also digital signatures, identity plays a significant role. And that's fantastic because it's a business case and pharmaceuticals are a regulated industry. And for us, it's uh, truly a sweet spot um, to play in the pharmaceutical sector with this kind of technologies and bring real solutions to life. Wow, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's really great. And it's amazing that you were in so early with Ethereum. Were you? Did you get a chance to meet Vitalik and talk to him? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so basically in, that was the other ecosystem. So we engaged with the Amsterdam ecosystem. I spent a lot of time in Berlin where the C++ team was. 
and uh, I met um, Vitalik in this in the location in Berlin, so where the development team was, and I met him also in New York and in oh, I think in in Shanghai for one of the early DevCons. And at this time, yeah, you could you could just go to the guy and talk to him. Yeah, yeah. Was, was great. Yeah. And and for the audience who don't know, um, Vitalik Buterin, he is the founder of Ethereum, and he you know wrote the white paper back in 2014. Um, that's really interesting, though, that Novartis is one of your first interested potential customers. I think, you know, the supply chain industry for pharmaceuticals is really complex, heavily regulated, as you mentioned. So it's an important that we use technology to help make that process more efficient and cut the waste. Um, what have you been seeing with the current crisis with COVID-19? I know there's solutions out there that people are trying to develop. Uh, to address this issue. And I'm thinking about, you know, since you're working with decentralized identity, how is decentralized identity? How can that help with addressing some of the issues we, we are seeing with the COVID-19 crisis or pandemic? Yeah, I, th yeah. I think I think there's some, some naive... Um let's say use cases for blockchain the first one is of course donations to use to use bitcoin kind of to do donations fast and where, where you really need the money i think then people thought a lot about um, airdrops and helicopter money um, in the corona crisis to to distribute the subsidies super fast to where it's needed to the households to the small medium enterprises a lot of people i think some of the blockchain and some other people sneaked in the digital dollar and the two trillion um, uh, stimulus program of uh, donald trump but also in europe people discuss the the airdrops however having said this if you would like to do the airdrops you have to do mass kyc an entire population of, of people or enterprises so that's very difficult to do in the short term so um, then what else are people doing especially in the identity space people think about um, using decentralized identity privacy preserving technology um, and the verifiable credentials for let's say uh, immunization pass or for immunization credentials so which means um, I, I had the coronavirus or I got uh, a vaccine and then I'm immunized and then I have a credential, I can show it and then I can travel more easily compared to people who don't have the credential. I think that's a use case in Germany. People are thinking about to do a mass yeah, uh, immunization test of 100,000 people. And of course, if you then have, um, let's say, uh, the intelligence who, who is immunized against the virus and who can work in critical infrastructures more easily and more reliable. I think that's a big benefit. So people looking into immunization credentials. And in addition, of course, when it comes to the tracking, people combine it with privacy preserving decentralized uh, sort of blockchain technology solutions and what we did at Sphirity so we be um, we basically believe in what's called electronic prescriptions because today people go to a doctor physically to show their insurance card and then they get a paper-based prescription to digitize the entire thing to use digital identity uh, electronic signatures combination blockchain I think that's that's a very big um, benefit and um, today we just got a call from one of the very big online pharmacies so in europe there's the or in germany legislation is pushing forward to get the electronic prescriptions in place however having said this 
So um, usually this means people talk in their um, industry associations and then their long procurement processes, nothing is moving. But now with the Corona crisis, um, there is an opportunity to get the electronic prescription technology in place um, to get some of the big players and push this forward. So that's something that we are looking into um, as well on our side. How is Germany coping with the coronavirus pandemic? Are you guys on lockdown now? Are you able to host events with public people? What's the situation there? I know, so in Germany, we are also completely locked down. And um, which means, yeah, people need to take uh, measures to have at least a distance of two meters to other people. Mm -hmm. So when you go in public, okay, you're only allowed when you work in critical infrastructures kind of to, to meet your colleagues. Um, otherwise, you're supposed only to, meet, to be with two people in public spaces and um, or with your family. And every big event is cancelled, yeah. yeah. And um, small events as well. So the subways, no people. Um, right. it's, it's, it's pretty locked down. Yeah. How has the Ministry of Health in Germany advanced digital health efforts now? How are, you mentioned a few examples, and I know they hosted a hackathon. I think that's very interesting. So I think the the, the, the government is still exploring, and um, in this hackathon, this was called Via versus virus so which means we as people fighting against the virus that was the hashtag and basically i think a couple of this digitization hubs in berlin they came up with the idea to do a hackathon then they kind of let's say acted in concerts this little innovation hubs they got engaged with the government and in the end forty thousand people registered being part of the hackathon 27,000 uh, uh, delivered something and they delivered approximately 2,000 projects. Yeah. And then a couple of these projects were kind of endorsed. And now there's kind of, let's say, some follow-up processes. Um, I think it's still a super democratic process um, because mm. the government is inviting people to participate. Let's say people as free individuals. It's not really kind of, let's say... Um, expected that companies and startup participate to develop a commercial model and i would say it's still a bit naive with this hackathon let's say okay the people develop a solution um when you look into problems to be solved from a digital perspective from an integration ex into existing legacy infrastructure because that's what you need to bootstrap a technology to scale it you cannot do it greenfield you have to integrate into existing technologies and you need some partners and I think not a handful of individual people will solve this. I think this will change. Right now, it's more, let's say, naive. Let's 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 ask the people to develop something, to spin up a website, to solve a very simple short-term problem. But when it's more kind of, let's say, fundamental problems, you need to do it in, in a more structured approach. But we expect the governance is kind of um, yeah, further developing further instruments um, so that these things can be tackled in, in a more structured approach and they are keen to 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 yeah, to use this as an opportunity to push digital technologies forward in e-government and e-health yeah tell me about why you thought of the idea to start um the application e-receipts yeah primarily um um, so as entrepreneurs, so the, the entire market dynamics completely changing. And for that reason, you should be part of this right early from the start to understand how the market is developing, what needs there are, what problems need to be solved. 
Um, so we decided to participate in this government um, sponsored hackathon. And then I spoke with my mother and my mother was basically saying, ah, yes, I need a new um, prescription, but I don't want to go to the doctor's office. And that's, then we thought, okay, it's an excellent problem. Let's try to solve it with digital technology. And that's the reason inspired by my mother, how we decided to go for the electronic prescription. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. If you think about it, I wouldn't want to go anywhere where there's other people who might be sick. And if you go to a pharmacy, likely they're there to pick up medications because maybe they are sick and you know, it's a, it's a risky place to go. So it seems to make a lot of sense. Um, and you know, there's obvious reasons to avoid brick and mortar pharmacies, as well as even if you think about telehealth, you have solutions where you can talk to a doctor without actually having to go to the clinic too. So technology is definitely accelerating at this time. Uh, I think this is great. Have you talked to how many pharmacies have you started working with? You said you mentioned an online pharmacy. Now, have you mm. tested this with other partners? Yeah, so basically went to the local pharmacy in my hometown. Yeah, and what's what's interesting? Um, so in Germany, so these posts are not not digitized so much um, today, and it's very traditional. You go to the doctor, get your prescription, go to the mm. pharmacy and then get your medication and now all this little small and in germany so we don't have this big pharmaceutical chains yeah so it's really small family businesses that have their small pharmacy in a local town and um, that's interesting because um, this was let's say a very analog process and now the local pharmacies they spin up um, delivery services yeah people can call them and then a delivery guy goes to the patient picking up the, uh, the prescription and then delivering the, the medication and they are now kind of changing and adopting the business model as well and when you would like to do solutions such as electronic prescriptions you have to understand how this can be integrated into existing processes but also into existing processes are now completely changed in the corona crisis and that's um yeah quite a nice challenge yeah. for sure and you know thinking about the social distancing impact globally it makes a lot of sense and i think this is this is a great solution uh, maybe um, Ray, you mentioned social distancing. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. we should talk about physical distancing because we have to make sure people are physically distanced, distanced, and um, which means um, still socially we need technology that people can interact, socially communicate, communicate in, in a very verifiable way mm -hmm. that I really know who's my counterparty, but also that people can do consent agreements, can do digital transactions, can engage in business, which means um, social distancing is really a big push for decentralized identity um, to make sure that people can, can still continue interacting among each other. So why is it so challenging to develop a decentralized identity system? Maybe um, Decentralized identity has multiple aspects. Yeah, so we can think about enterprise identity, object identity, such as a pharmaceutical product. We can think about machine identity and human identity. So when it comes to blockchain decentralized identity, the vast majority of the people think about human identity and they call it self-sovereign identity. So it's driven by a very libertarian approach um, or cyberpunk approach. So I, as an individual, will fully control my 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 identity, will fully control all my data, will, will do whatever it takes to fully contact, 
protect my privacy. So which means I individual would like to apply a lot of cryptography. And um, so when you start doing this, um, there are some technical complexities doing this. You can do it on small scale, but rolling it out on a larger scale, it's a challenge. I think that's, that's the first challenge. The second challenge is um, you have to make sure that you have a root of trust, yeah? because I have now a digital identity, mm, but who knows that I'm I and you are you, and this is really, um, let's say, Bayer or Pfizer. Or right, how do you Johnson connect the real identity to the yes. di digital one, right? Yeah, and I think from a technology, this is solvable, but um, so what is the standard? It's being adopted by a lot of businesses and people, and then I have to KYC everyone, all the businesses and all the people, And if I would do it on a mass scale, um, there's no solution yet in place, uh, no interoperable solution that's adopted by by huge critical mass. And that's that's also part of the challenge. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, being a startup company, how do you develop? How do you do business development? How do you reach out to new prospects? So we have so yeah, because of um, our experience um, over a couple of years, um, so we have a lot of trusted relationships to people in IT, in innovation, um, in uh, technical-driven innovation, in R&D. And we basically cluster our people in our network, which means um, who understands the technology. Mm -hmm. Because as a startup, we cannot afford to educate them. And sometimes, even if, even if we have people in our network who, who did the stuff for at least one year in decentralized something, um, it sometimes still takes another six months so that they are on the level to really understand technology, business opportunities, how to scale it, how to retrofit. So a lot of education involved and we cannot afford it to do it. Then second, we, um, we look for people who understand technology. Second, um, we look for people um, who work on a business case um, because people who don't work on a business case, let's say in R&D, They do fantastic stuff. You can do a $20,000 dollar project with them. But then if there's not a clear business case, so there's no budget to scale it and to pitch to C-level. So which means when we do business development, we look for people who understand it, work on a business case. And third, um, when you would like to do a decentralized proposition, it only works if there's an ecosystem. Hmm. So we look for people who bring the complete ecosystem. So there are some companies who have this ecosystem innovation which is also, if you look into what the World Economic Forum is doing, ecosystem innovation, ecosystem innovation leadership. So it's um, it's a completely different mindset and leadership and management style, if you would like to engage in it. Some company have it um, and they have their open-minded developing ecosystem, have a complete ecosystem, so we're working with them because as a startup, we don't have the money to develop an ecosystem. So we have to kind of, let's say, bootstrap what, what our customers have. And that's what we do. And we basically can distinguish two types of customers. One type is looking into patenting everything and working in the silo and building the desk star and the silo. And the other type of customers, they are super open. Um, they are collaborating and looking for ecosystem innovation and these are the types of customers we engage with so. very interesting i think that's a pretty pretty strict filter i think but it makes sense because you know as a startup you have limited resources and time so you don't want to waste your time with people who don't understand the technology <laughs> and and there's plenty of information on the web that they can use and resources online so um you know don't don't feel bad if 
Karsten is ignoring you guys. <laughs> so I'm not, um, not ignoring people because I love to educate. I'm a physicist. Of course, of course. And, yeah, it's it's a quite a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> But as, when we do business development, we have to focus a bit. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, I want to talk a little bit more about the self-sovereign identity concept. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned there's multiple types of self-sovereign identities. One is the human concept. That's probably the most complicated one. The other is machine. That there is organizational identity, etc. Um, but I want to talk about the human portion because I think that's very important. It's probably the most difficult, in my opinion. You, you can let me know if you think otherwise. But what are the ways in which a human can prove that they are human and their own identity online without having to reveal um, all the information about them. So how do I give my driver's license to my bartender without actually giving him my driver's license when I want to get into the bar, for example? Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe I start at the beginning. So uh, when you talk to a cryptographer, um, or you be, oh, so what's happening today? Today I have, let's say, this big organizations, Google, Facebook, the government, and mm -hmm. some other organizations, and I log in, I have an identifier, and then they collect all the data, and then can give other people access to the data, and then they can verify something. This is all very complex. I think what, what people have in mind, it's an old concept. Um, I think a lot of our listeners might know PGP, which is an email signature signing identity and encryption technology and that's that's what public key infrastructure is about and that's kind of the underlying basis of decentralized identity and self-identity as well which means so first of all i have to create an identifier how do i do this i create how the cryptographers are doing i create entropy which is the same as randomness so i need good randomness and out of the randomness i create a seed And when I have the seed, which is a string of um, zeros and ones, I have the seed, I can use the seed to create a public-private key pair. And I need this to sign something, to sign a message, to sign a certificate, to to sign a data pay pilot, and I needed to sign something. And when I have, let's say, out of the randomness, I created my public-private key pair, I can use the public key Uh, and I can derive an identifier out of this. And this is my identifier. And now we have to um, distinguish whether I'm a human or I'm an institution. As an institution, I would like to issue a credential about a human, which could be a driver license, which could be an identity card, which could be university certificate. And what does this mean? I need to have a very very clear technology where know the identifier of the government or the university and where i can check it this is really the identity the identifier of the university because it could be that the mit is issuing a certificate about myself that i participated in a course or that i got a degree mm -hmm. but as a as a verifier as an individual i need to check is this a real mit or the fake mit mm -hmm. so which means i have to deal with a couple of identifiers of the so-called issuers and of the identity holders or the identity subjects and i can create these identifiers bottom up out of randomness and then i need to collect some certificates you asked a couple of questions what's called how can i prove something without revealing all the data this is a concept called selective privacy 
And what I can basically do as an individual, I have now my decentralized identifier. Then I go to, let's say, the government, ask the government to give me a digital proof. Could Some people call it a digital certificate or verifiable credential. So which is nothing more. I ask the government to give me, let's say, a, piece, uh, a bunch of data about myself and to sign it. And it's signed by the government or it's signed by a know your, know your customer. Uh, authentication provider. Mm -hmm. I get this piece of data and now I have my digital identity card or my driving license signed um, yeah, let's say by the government and now in the bar I would like to show it to you and there are two ways I can basically show the entire signed data set to you to prove that I am Carsten Stöcker I live in Germany I'm older than 18 and I have an identity card number and this is now a digitized version of it however This has a flaw because um, I need to reveal my entire identity to the bartender. And then there's the other concept called selective privacy, as I, as an individual, can choose out of my digitized identity card which of the information I would like to share. Do I only want to share my first name or my last name or my birth date? Um, And that's, that's what the digital, what the, what the selective privacy technology is doing. So I'm empowered now to only share what my counterparty is, the information about me that my counterparty really needs and nothing else. So that's the data minimization principle in terms of GDPR that we have here in, uh, in the European Union and in Europe. And then there's another piece of technology that's now coming in. It's called zero knowledge proofs. I have my birth date and then I can create proof about my birth date, whether I'm older uh, than 18 years or not, without even revealing the birth date. And that's interesting um, because in self-identity, that's let's say the crown jewel of the technology. I have an identifier. I can even go this far um, I use an identifier for every new interaction or for every new communication. So when I go to the bartender, I use an other identifier as I used for the government. If I buy something on Amazon, I use again an other identifier. So that's a concept that um, cryptographers call pairwise um, pseudonymous identifier, which means if I have different identifiers in, in different communications, communications then it cannot be correlated yeah. you said pairwise pseudo anonymous identifier mm -hmm. okay interesting yeah so which means um in, in our conversation i'm carsten and then i'm talking to my wife and then i'm bob and i'm talking to my son um, i'm charlie and then i'm talking to amazon and i'm alice uh, however this cryptographic instruments i have at my disposal i can use them to prove that the government said I'm Carsten older than 18 years, I can prove it and I decide which of the data I can share. And this, this super privacy preserving technology is of course extremely interesting when it comes to, let's say, um, patient data, health records. Right. I, but I would say that's a crown jewel. Um, if you can also start with kind of less less sophisticated technologies, achieve a lot, but I think that's, that's a big dream. And then, then there's, there's another technology called multi-party computation that e it's even more powerful um, yeah, and, and opens up more, more, more doors for, for privacy-preserving identity, transactions, communication, and especially when it comes to healthcare data. So these are very promising candidates um, that will be adopted in the, yeah, the midterm future.
so which level, which type of privacy preserving technology are you utilizing for e-receipt in your platform or are you um, right now? So we have, we have two technology stacks. So one is built on a um, on an Ethereum based. It's Ethereum? called decentralized identity. Uh, yeah, Ethereum identifier um, method, and then the other one is built on Sovereign and on Hyperledger Indy. So those are the two two let's say leading identity technologies. And um, so when you decide to uh, um, to adopt Sovereign and Indy, then you get. A full arsenal of cryptographic tools, including what I mentioned, the um, zero knowledge proofs, and then you can do a lot in terms of building very privacy preserving technology. However, having said this, so when you look in the use cases, the, we, we discussed the proof of 18, am I older or not than 18 years or 21 years? Mm-hmm. Um, so then, then you really need this. Um, uh, yeah, sophisticated zero-knowledge proofs, for example, sophisticated cryptography. But for a lot of other things, this is not required. I can I can work with micro-credentials, like I have um, credential assigned data sets about my first name, last name, birth date, identity card number, driver license number, um, mm-hmm. uh, driver license status, whatever it is. And then I can decide on, on this micro-credentials, which, which of them do I share. And so for e-receipt, basically, so we have built on Ethereum, so not leveraging the um, full arsenal of privacy-preserving zero-knowledge proofs. Um, but from, from, from our perspective, this is um, yeah, it's a good approach because for e-receipt, we don't need to reveal much because we, um, we basically get KYC once. So we get the micro-credentials, name, first name, where do I live and uh, and my birth date. And these are exactly the credentials I have to disclose to my doctor because my doctor is um, authenticating myself exactly on these data sets, yeah. which means we designed the solution to the minimum data sets the doctor needs to know to authenticate myself. And in Germany, so when you go, go in, the, uh, in the doctor's office, you always have to say first name, last name, uh, uh, so where do you live and your birth date and that's how they authenticate you and that's kind of credentials we share and that's um, yeah that's what's in e-receipt the doctor is using to authenticate myself via phone or via other means and then he can uh, issue credential for me okay so let's talk more about the user experience because I, I want it to be a little you know very clear so let's say I'm a patient and I don't have the software e-receipt and let's say the pharmacy is running their the software for e-receipt and i go and i want to open an account how does it work so how do i first create an account for credentialing my identity yes yeah, so, so, so first of all you have to download an app okay. um, an identity and uh, e-receipt or e-prescription app Secondly, you have to get KYC, so which means... Um, so I do have to put my information, all my um, credentials, legal information has to be put inside the app? Sure, ab- absolutely, you have to do this. In addition, you have, you have to go to an identity verification provider because they have to mm. issue credential about me, that I'm really Carsten or that you're really uh, Ray. So that when you go to fam, uh, that you when you go to doctor or you only talk to the doctor over the phone, you can authenticate yourself with the uh, with your credentials. So a KYC process is um, yeah 
uh, it's essential, uh, it's necessary, really. it's essential requirement um, because the doctor otherwise don't know to whom do I talk um, over the right. phone or but after that initial KYC is complete, you don't have to go through that process. You can just show them nope. like a barcode or something and that proves your identity. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's, that's important. I think the KYC stuff is coming from the banking. They, they went crazy at, the fir at first about, let's say, decentralized identity and KYC credential because if I KYC once with one bank, I go to another bank, I can show exactly the same credentials and being onboarded there. And if you have it, if they have them once, you can use it for multiple purposes, for mobility, for healthcare, for sure. banking, whatever it is. So yeah. this is a huge use case also for provider credentialing, verifying a healthcare provider's, you know, education, any residencies, Absolutely. all their experience, certifications, um, any work that they've done throughout their medical career. You know, that is also a use case that a lot of people have been working on, uh, yeah. and especially in the United States where states have different requirements for licensing each provider although that has changed recently and due to the coronavirus pandemic uh, those regulations have been relaxed can you explain this digital twin concept to me yeah so for us um, so when you look into kind of let's say the etymology of digital twin or the semantics what is digital twin or what is digital identity or what's the healthcare record or what is the uh, an electronic record about the car, I, these are, let's say, top-down, it's, it's all the same because you basically um, have to create an identifier first and then you would like to get information about the life cycle of a human, um, of a pharmaceutical product, of a car, or whatever it is. And then you have um, master data about the life cycle in in theory and that's how, how people call it in supply chains you would like to have back to birth traceability so which means whether it's a pharmaceutical product it's a batch of pharmaceutical products or it's a car or it's an engineered product whatever it is so when i as a supply chain actor interacting with this thing i would like to make sure it's authentic i would like to make sure that is a birth certificate. So when was it produced? When does it expire? I would like to make sure that the object over its life cycle was treated correctly. So which means how was the car being used? Yeah? Was the car being kind of driven too hard and now it's kind of crap um, and nothing, mm -hmm. nothing worse? Um, or do I need want to know uh, about the pharmaceutical product I'm buying? So how was it produced? How was it released to the market? How was it transported in a cold chain from the manufacturer to the pharmacy? Right. Uh, what happens in the, at the wholesaler side? Were there rats in the um, warehouse? In the yeah, in the warehouse of the wholesaler, and I cannot trust it. And um, all this kind of life cycle, so you can also say a story of everything. Mm -hmm. So a digital twin is basically recording a story of everything. And when you use decentralized technologies and you have a verifiable story of everything, you can basically verify this is really the, the birth certificate of Daimler or of Bayer or Pfizer. Um, is it really the TÜV that kind of, let's say, checked the machine or is it really the government that kind of um, issued a title? And um, so when there is a, an arbitrary object has let's say an entire story about the life cycle i would like to have it verifiable and that's by the way that's that's now i think a very important um, topic 
when it comes to decentralized technology for digital twinning is um, so in traditional supply chains i have a linear sequential supply chain so which means i have 20 years of relationships to my counterparty. I post, I put inspectors on top of the business processes. They check all the paperwork. They check all the data. It's expensive to do this. However, having said this, um, so Gartner is coming up with or came up with a term, I think in 2015 or 16, quite some time ago, they talked about dynamically defined supply chains. And that's what Industry 4.0, Fourth Industrial Revolution is about, what 5G is about, what IoT is about. So we have dynamically defined supply chains, which means I don't know who are my counterparties I'm interacting right now. I have no clue with whom I'm interacting tomorrow, which means I cannot afford to put all the, the, the inspectors on top of it uh, to check all the data. I need, I don't have the instruments to check whether the data were created by a malicious bot or whether created by the real manufacturer or by a real machine or by a real pharmacy, I need to have the means in place to do this. And that's, that's what the verifiability is about. And when we have dynamically defined value chains, um, then I have two kind of solutions for this. I can put one big central system in place where all the data is consolidated and can be checked. Um, or I have a couple of platforms and silos and then I have to connect all these silos or I use decentralized technology. And that's, that's fantastic because when I have the decentralized technology, there's Alice in one platform in one ecosystem and then there's Bob um, in another platform, another ecosystem. And um, so it could be, for example, a wholesaler mm. of pharmaceutical products and can be a manufacturer. And so when it's a big ecosystem, such as the pharmaceutical market in the United States, then the, the manufacturer uh, doesn't really know who are the wholesalers, who are the distributors of the pharmacies. But when they have to authenticate each other, there is no centralized platform that um, has all the wholesalers and distributors on this platform for, for authentication. Then decentralized technology makes, makes sense. And that's from our thinking, it's the ultimate network effect, um, which scales um, dramatically because I've now Alice and Bob sitting on two different platforms. But if Alice and Bob agree on a standard, uh, uh, how to establish trust, how to verify data, how to verify a life cycle of a product, the story of a thing, then the two parties can yeah, apply this technology, uh, ask for credentials about each other, or for certificates. Um, they can cryptographically check them and then they can establish trust. And that's the ultimate network effect because then I don't need the Facebook, the government, I don't need the Equifax, um, and right. I need to go to their database and check it. I can directly go to Ray, I can directly go um, to the pharmaceutical product or to my counterpart in the pharmaceutical supply chain, request credential, build trust, and this helps to build trust and reduce risk from a business perspective, but this dramatically um, helps to fulfill regulatory requirements such as articulated in the US Drug Supply Chain Security Act. This is full of regulations. I have to check who's my counterparty, uh, authorized trading partner. I need to check um, 
product identity, the life cycle of a product uh, when it comes to resellable returns. And this technology is solving a big, big problem here. And that's, that's the reason why, um, so why we pretty much like it. And yeah. I think I need, now I need to come back to digital twins. Um, <laughs> I talked a bit about, let's say, a story of everything. Um, so if you use decentralized technology to build digital twins, then you have a verifiable verifiable story of everything in addition um that's then the other aspects of digital twins it must not be a passive object it can also be um, a machine a machine that's creating iot data i can sign the iot data and then i truly know this data came out of this machine it was a it was a certified machine original oem machine from yeah, from Bosch, for example, or someone else. And then I can start trusting the data coming out of the machine. And, um, yeah. I mean, that sounds like, a, you know, a really good idea. I think it's, it makes a lot of sense. So why do you think there's some barriers? What are the biggest misconceptions of blockchain and decentralized technology when you speak with these healthcare executives? Mm, I think one... One misconception is people think about blockchain and the use case I just described, that we have to write data on a blockchain. And writing data of a blockchain is difficult because blockchain doesn't scale or doesn't scale yet to kind of to put shitload of data on it. And secondly, I have big privacy issues, not only from a, from a patient human perspective, but also from a business perspective. Because if I put my transaction on a blockchain, even they're encrypted and whatever countermeasures I do, mm -hmm. so people can correlate and they get competitive insights. Yeah? yeah, And that's what you don't know. And I think that's, 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 that's a key misconception. So when we engaged with um, some of the pharmaceuticals, uh, and when we pitched what we are doing, um, then we said, uh, so we try to avoid blockchain as much as possible. We don't write, want anything on blockchain. And that's what they liked. And um, that's how we got in, um, yeah, in some, into some of the, the good pharmaceutical projects here, uh, here in Europe. And that's, that's, by the way, the idea of decentralized identity. And that's still a big misconceptions. People think, okay, when we do blockchain, we have to write data and do all the smart contracts okay. and automate. Well, this, is not, this is not required. So you can use decentralized public key infrastructure, as I explained it with the entropy, with the randomness and the identifier. And you can even extend it to pairwise pseudonymous identifiers, yeah, whatever you like. <laughs> but all the data off-chain. And then the other big, big um, insight is I, as an identity holder or an identity subject, so that's how it's being kind of, let's say, that's the terminology we use here, I fully control my data. Mm -hmm. This means they are not at a database in a service provider. I control them. And I can put algorithms on top of it. I can put business models on top of it. I can do some, some micro and dynamics, and that's, that's a different, different Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. In order to combat the coronavirus, organizations and governments are seeking to use technology to notify people if they have been in contact with someone with the virus. Contact tracing helps identify people who are in contact with an infected individual. On April 10th, Google and Apple announced a joint effort to use Bluetooth technology to help governments and health agencies reduce the spread of the virus. 
Public health authorities, universities, and NGOs around the world have been doing important work to develop opt-in contact tracing technology. Apple and Google would be launching a comprehensive solution that includes application programming interfaces, or APIs, in May of this year. In the coming months, Apple and Google will work to enable a broader Bluetooth-based contact tracing platform by building this functionality into the underlying platforms. The duo emphasizes the importance of privacy, transparency, and consent management. Singapore has already developed an app called Trace Together that uses Bluetooth to detect possible contact with an infected person. The technology also appears to be privacy-focused and only uses the minimum amount of data for contact tracing. Although Singapore claims that Trace Together data older than 21 days will be automatically deleted, Many critics argue that this type of data collection is only going to increase the level of government surveillance. As a result of the pandemic, many fear governments will impose rules to increase the amount of data points collected on their citizens. One example of a blockchain-based contact tracing solution is being developed by the Enigma community. It is a privacy-preserving contact tracing tool called SafeTrace and is currently looking for collaborators. It's great to see that these projects are all focused on the privacy aspects of sharing critical health information with each other. It is still an experiment to see how these tools will actually be adopted, but I gotta say I'm impressed at the rapid development we are seeing in this space. I will be following these and other Bluetooth-based contact tracing solutions throughout the next few months. They can really change the way we interact with strangers and each other. And now let's get back to the show with Karsten Stoker, CEO of Spherity. Let's talk about how the various healthcare stakeholders in the industry, how they benefit from a decentralized identity platform like your, like Spherity. So, you know, in, a, in healthcare, you have patients, providers, payers, the pharmaceutical industry, researchers, and regulators. So how do each of these specific stakeholders benefit? So I understand the patient side, and maybe we don't have to cover that one as much. Um, and yeah, I, I guess, what would you say to that question? Yeah, maybe let's let's look in the let's start with pharmaceutical supply chain. Yeah, pharmaceutical supply chain starts with onboarding suppliers, suppliers that provide a service, that provide a veil, or provide an active pharmaceutical ingredients. If I onboard them, I need to KYC them. So for humans, it's easy. It's my identity card. If I onboard my suppliers in pharmaceutical case. I need to do anti-bribery, child labor, environment, health and safety standards, some other regulatory requirement, required credentials. And that's, by the way, what a um, couple of companies here in Germany are doing, uh, sorry, in Europe are doing. They're looking in a process called third-party risk management, which means the same what I do as a human. I asked the human to get a KYC, know your customer credential place. I now asked my suppliers to get supplier third-party risk management credentials in place. Mm. And that's interesting because I mentioned a human get KYC for one bank and take the same credentials we get super fast on board second bank. And that's exactly the idea in third-party risk management. I, as a supplier, um, have my credentials, child labor, anti-bribery, labor rights, environment, health and safety and other, and other credentials. I get through this very painful process being onboarded with my pharmaceutical customer. And now I ask my pharmaceutical customer to issue credential about myself. And if I have them, I can go to the next pharmaceutical 
uh, customer presents the same credentials and can get onboarded in a much faster, quicker and reliable way. And this saves money. And um, that's one of the use cases. It's maybe not the most spectacular use case, but it's very important because whatever you do in identity, in decentralized, in digital transformation, it all starts at the enterprise identity. I have my machines, I have my pharmaceutical products, I give them identity, I, give, I interact with patients, whatever I do. First, I have to sort out enterprise identity. And this is what we like about the third party risk management. It's about identity of the pharmaceuticals, identity of the suppliers, and then I can onboard them very fast. And when it comes to processes called a trusted release of a batch, which means I produce a batch of pharmaceutical products, and now I just cannot only release it to market, I have to check a lot of things, inbound uh, quality control, outbound quality control, supplier certificates, machine certificates, uh, operator training, and a lot of more things. And one of these certificates is the supplier certificate. If the supplier certificate is expired, then my entire trust release process is broken as well, which means it makes a lot of sense to start with supplier certificates. But then to look into um, the trust release uh, process, to digitize it with electronic signatures, with decentralized identity, and that's what, what people are aiming for. They call it one-button release, which basically means um, uh, I, get a, I get a batch of pharmaceutical products, um, um, the digital twin of the batch is trailing with its entire audit trail. And when I would like to release it, I check the, the, the audit trail of the batch. I can do it in, in, a, in, a, in, a, yeah, in a machine automated fashion, which reduces a lot of effort there. And then there, there are other things in, uh, in research and development and clinical trials. Then you, 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 people think about informed consent. Can I use digital identity um, for informed consent to um, accelerate and improve my um, my bureaucratic processes to manage informed consent with my patients? Or how can I improve, let's say, um, all the analytics? I have a test kit, ship it to a hospital, a nurse, it's applying it to a patient. How do I capture the data? How do I get the audit trails in place? Um, Today, there's big quality issues in these processes, and there's, there's a big business benefit there. And then when you think about serialization efforts, um, and as I mentioned, the US uh, uh, Drug Supply Chain Security Act, um, so there are further use cases. So bottom line, in pharmaceutical, a lot of use cases for decentralized identity, audit trails, uh, more digitization or, um, and, and, and automation. Then if you if you go to the health insurance companies, of course, they are also interested. It's not, I think the entire insurance company is looking, or the entire insurance world is looking into identity, audit trails, and reliability. And um, also the, the health insurance people, I think this e-prescription, so it's, um, it's one use case, but also when it gets into telemedicine, or when it gets into to other use cases, how can I trust the, uh, the data coming out of a medtech device? I then put my algorithms on top of it. How can I, that some people call it a virtual clinic, and then I get some data out of the virtual clinic. So I got some analytical data from a medtech device into something, an algorithm process it, I get the data out of it. So what is the risk? What is the risk associated with this with this label I get out of the machine of the virtual clinic? And these are also questions that are important for the pharmaceuticals, for the 
healthcare providers, but also for the insurance companies. And um, yeah, so yeah. there again, again, a lot of use cases there as well. Yeah. How would you say regulators? Because it seems like you know, ah, we're talking about how um, we have these companies and you know large companies, Google, Facebook, controlling data and government as well. Um, you know, using these decentralized systems, will we have a future without the need of such regulations enforced by government? So I, I, I personally think um, that we see more regulations enforced by governments um, for pa health patient and security of the entire medical system. Uh, however, I think regulatory process can be much more efficient. Yeah, mm. um, And so, so our customers engage with regulators, they do the education, and usually the regulators perceive it very well, and they are open to kind of, let's say, to look deeper into technology and to consider so what we call productive field test to really bring the, the technology in, into the field. You can call it a sandbox approach, but I think you can also call it dual mode of operations. Let's say that regulators rely on ex existing processes and in a dual mode of operations, they just put this technology on top of it to get some benefits out of it. And regulators love it because they have full auditability, verifiability, they have it more machine readable, they could get more access to data, um, yeah, to check that the processes are in place. And um, so our our lessons learned or lessons learned for our customers engaged with regulators is they understand it and they would love to get more involved. Yeah, I think that's kind of okay. the state of the play right now. Tell me more about the Sphirity partnerships and user community that you have. Our partnerships, we are primarily a B2B company, so which means so we engage with um, customers. Um, so first, we start with the so-called Sprint Zero, yeah, which means we do a little project, um, providing the evidence the technology works, and that's the business case, and then we drive it to proof of concept and to productive field test. And so we don't have, let's say, a super large customer case because the three criteria, yeah, mm -hmm. it's a strict filter. And mm -hmm. so when I worked for Accenture, there was this kind of, yes, um, focus on the diamond clients, the key accounts, yeah, and that's what we do. <laughs> because this is about trust relationships, that's about really fighting together to get the business case in place and to kind of, let's say, to get a healthy ecosystem in place. And that's the reason so why we have a key account strategy, so we focus on few customers, but with very trust relationships, with a lot of intimacy uh, and, and trust how we collaborate with our customers. And so we don't have, let's say... Can you share a couple of names? Approach. You said Novartis already. Any other names that you can share? Yeah, I think it's, I think that's I think that's a, the one name okay. we, are, we, are, we are allowed we to share. share. That's fine. Um, I have but... other questions. <laughs> <There you are. laughs> um, what are some of... What are the failure points of your platform? So, you know, we talked about how great it is, but where can it be compromised? Oh, where can it be compromised? Um, let's, let's go back, let's say, because I want to say this when you mm -hmm. ask me about human identity. Mm -hmm. And that's a big problem because let's yeah. assume we have the very best cryptography and good stuff here. One of the key promises of technology is interoperability and data portability, which means no login. I have one identity provider yeah i like it i work with them then or let's say it's not it's it's an identity technology provider because i control my own data i have one provider and then i would like to switch to another because it's interoperability no login 
And um, I think in, in theory, you can do this, but this is a very big problem when it comes to human identity, because let's say, uh, let's say Alice has the world best, super secure privacy preserving solution. And then there's Bob and Bob is storing the private key uh, or a couple of private keys in Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. But let's say as Charlie, how do I know I can trust Alice and there's no identity theft going on with Alice, Alice's identity. And how do I can trust Bob and I can be sure there's no identity theft on Bob's side. Mm -hmm. I as Charlie, I have no clue what is the underlying reliability, maturity and security of technology. And that's, that's, that's a very big problem. Um, where we, one of the big problems where we think, um, yeah, that that's need to be solved that I even have a credential about the wallet and the key management. Can I really trust it? And there's fantastic key management out there in the market, but not all people are adopting it. And now in a, let's say in a more consortium driven approach on a more, let's say uh, controlled approach, I don't need to, let's say have 20 wallet providers or identity technology providers. I don't need all of them. Uh, I can basically validate and qualify a handful of, let's say, tech providers here. And then I only in a permissioned approach, give them access to an ecosystem. And as I know, they're qualified and validated, I can trust the underlying technology. Um, I think that's, that's one topic in general. Yeah. How, how do I trust that technology is implemented properly? Um, and of course then, yeah, what else is going on? So we invest a lot, what we call uh, dev sec ops. What's that sec ops? Yeah, a lot of listeners have maybe heard about DevOps, which is a combination of development and operations oh. to bring the two disciplines together uh, in an agile way, but in a very reliable way so you can really operate your systems. And um, the DevSecOps term is now development, security and operations so that you have from day one IT security, cyber security on your high, high, high prioritized on your agenda to develop a solution, to deploy it and to operate it. And that's, that's a very challenging discipline because in the end you don't develop just a simple um, uh, iOS app. Uh, you probably have a combination of a smartphone, of a cloud solution. Then there is a cloud solution that's being integrated with existing legacy infrastructure because you can come up with your decentralized identity solution, but you're not in a green field. So people call it brownfield. So which means uh, if you want to scale, you have to, to integrate with existing infrastructure, with existing legacy system. And that's what people call retrofitting. So if you can, if you have your nice technology, you can retrofit and integrate them with existing yeah, legacy infrastructure, such as uh, MedTech infrastructure, such as an ERP system, a manufacturing execution system, or some other systems. So if you can retrofit, so then you can scale. But of course, when you retrofit, then again, you have to look into a lot of IT security, cyber, cyber security requirements to really make it work. And I think that's a bit on security and, uh, and um, 
yeah, security and these things. Bottom line is you have to keep it simple. You have to apply a lot of best practices and um, to do a lot of testing, qualification, validation to be really sure you can you can trust the underlying technology. So we have yeah. s solutions or people think we have solutions. So if I wanted to log into a online platform, I can simply use my Google account. So in a way, people consider that to be their single identity when they're traversing through the Internet. And it's, it's quite easy to use. It verifies, it asks me if this is really me on my cell phone. So there's that physical way to identify me because I'm, I must be holding my smartphone with me when I'm doing that process. Um, so I think like, you know, there are certain solutions people have become comfortable with and there is a status sure. quo about what to expect. How are you going to break the status quo and use innovation? Let's think from a user perspective first, mm -hmm. from a human perspective first, because yeah. enterprise is a different one. Sure. Let's say as, as, as a user, maybe I have all my data sitting on one on one phone. Um, that's probably not a reliable solution. I lose it. Or I have multiple phones. Um, mm -hmm. It's difficult. So so our 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 um, thinking is we would like to have a self-sovereign cloud solution. So, which means I have my data stored on, a, okay, I can also deploy my own server from at home and do edge, whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I think it's more realistic that, that, I've, that I as a human to really bring this to life need cloud. And so we call it self-sovereign identity cloud solution, which means I as a human have my own little tiny thing sitting in the cloud. And of course, then you can say, ah, your provider, then maybe it's with Amazon, Azure, with Google, it's, it's hosting the, the technology, mm -hmm. then they can, they might be able to exploit it. And we think, we think, I think the solution is uh, a combination of, let's say, I have my own little yeah, subscription on a cloud. I fully own it. I fully control it. I control my identity. I control the underlying certificates and verifiable credentials but it's of utmost importance that i control my keys which means um, the cryptographic keys where i sign messages with where i can prove that i am i and um, so this is what we think a solution is a combination of a bit of smartphone but the heart is in the cloud but in the cloud i control fully the keys for signing and for encryption and um, to get access to my own keys, I need biometrics because only with biometrics I can prove that I am I and no one is stealing my password. And that's so that's our thinking, multi-factor authentication with biometrics and with keys that are fully controlled by the identity holder and um, not by someone else, a, a cloud provider or, yeah, or these kind of things. Interesting. So I do have a question that came from our Telegram community channel mm -hmm. uh, that's at Health Unchained. If you have Telegram, please join the community. So the question is, could e-receipt be combined with some sort of location beacon? Uh, the example was given foam, foam.space, and that will allow for the medications to be delivered by drone. So you can verify your identity with e-receipt, fulfill your prescription, and then the, the drone will deliver your medications. Have you thought about something like that? Yeah, so by, by coincidence, we know the foam people um, because we are also part of the bigger, let's say, consensus ecosystem because I met Vitaly Buterin these times. I also met mm -hmm. um, Joe Lubin and then we got connected and somehow got got to know about foam and foam <laughs> is doing a so-called proof of location. And um, 
then they came up with some ideas to stake some information about the location and some other crazy stuff. But I think, let's say the proof of location, the people are thinking, I think the bone deliver is a fantastic use case. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, the Chinese might want to do it um, because they are now kind of adopting drone delivery technology in the COVID crisis and they have done it. Um, let's say it's a, f- a little bit more, let's say, far-fetched from, from a German perspective. Um, I think there, there, there is value in, do I need to really verify? <laughs> so I haven't thought about the drone delivery um, use case and uh, and form proof, a verifiable proof of location yet, because when I am I and I um, provide my delivery location data to a service provider and I sign it and I get a receipt from my service provider signed by them and I know it's really the the drone pharmacy service provider. Right. I think this is good enough. I'm I'm not quite sure if, um, if I need a proof of location for this delivery because I control the entire process here. Um, but anyway, there might be some value, but so definitely value um, will be and people are considering this to combine this for this corona tracking. So that I have a proof of location. So where are people? What is their immunization status? What is their corona something status? And um, I have a verifiable proof. I think this, this this can be interesting. What is going on the hotspots? And do I have some some user community data? If this is a, mm-hmm. a dangerous hotspot or safe hotspot? Um, so can you tell me about the ecosystem roadmap for you and Sphirity in for the rest of 2020 and beyond that? Mm-hmm. I think. Ecosystem is fantastic um, topic you just mentioned because I've, I completely forgot it. <laughs> I talked about decentralized identity and let's say as a startup, we can have brilliant ideas working on them and on our ivory, ivory tower and come up with the world best identity, decentralized something technology. This doesn't help at all because I mentioned it's about interoperability, portability, security and some other things. And so we truly believe in the standards. And all what I said about identity, we only apply worldwide web consortium W3C standards. And that's important because they standardize the decentralized identifiers. They have already standardized the um, electronic signatures, which is called these uh, uh, verifiable credentials. In addition, this is super healthy, super collaborative, super energized ecosystem around this. And there is Sovereign Foundation, there's Hyperledger, Indie, and some other Hyperledger groups um, working on the same technology. Um, there's a Decentralized Identity Foundation, the Diff Foundation, and further other foundations. There's a new foundation called Human Colossus, Colossus Foundation. There's a Trust Over IP Foundation. So it's, it's, it's a super healthy global collaborative ecosystem. And um, I think that's important because when it comes to interoperability, you have to make sure that people are adopting the technology um, because if they don't adopt it, it doesn't help. Mm-hmm. And having said this, it's all also the inventors of the internet. So Tim Berners-Lee right. is, let's say, working in a niche. He has his, his identity pot. Um, then there's Christopher Allen. Christopher Allen is a guy who, do, who, who did all the heavy lifting on the HTTPS. He was working heavy on the S, the secure in HTTP. And those guys are, let's say, let's say the early, early inventors of the internet. Um, they really, 
their big insight is identity screwed up. It's kind of with Facebook, Google, and these kind of companies. We have to fix it. And they're putting a lot of energy into kind of, let's say, this W3C, WordWord Web Consortium ecosystem to get decentralized and standardized. Um, and when it's standardized, it can be adopted. So there's, there's, there's a bigger movement and the, and the roadmap to get this in place. And um, the, the basic standards are almost defined. Some of them are endorsed by W3C already. Some of them are now being feature-freezed and then endorsed um, beginning of next year. But as they're feature-freezed, they're yeah, pretty, pretty stable. And then there's this other thing. Okay, now I have two identity solutions. And that's roadmap from this entire economy, uh, ecosystem. And let's say I have the Ray identity solution and the Castnet solution, and now the two have to talk to each other. And that's what's going on now to standardize how the communication protocol is going among that's, these identity solutions. That's amazing. If you if you know Tim Berners-Lee, let me know. I'd love to get him on the show. He's the inventor of the internet, so uh, I think it'd be fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know him. I only know his work, but I know the Christopher Allen guy and a couple of other people. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what do you believe in that most people would disagree with? Yeah. So I personally believe in what, what Gartner is saying, dynamically defined value chains. Mm. So they are merging already now. And um, I believe we have to prepare technology um, now to cope with this dynamically defined value chains. So a lot of people I talk with, they say, okay, it's five years out, 10 years out. Why should I, why should I bother? But when I look in the, in the use cases where unknown parties meet in a full IoT 5G connected world, then, so we have to take care about this dynamically defined value chains. Yeah. The other belief is where people disagree. It's more tech, technology perspective. I think quantum computing is a big threat when it comes to um, security of the cryptographic primitives people are now using to build systems, whether in blockchain or somewhere else or in Amazon. And I think we have to prepare now um, to be post to, to deliver post quantum secure solutions and not wait for another five years because then it might be too late. Right. And then all the existing cryptography will be pointless. <laughs> Everyone can, it'll be cracked basically. Who knows? Yeah, no one knows. No one knows. But we have to take counter counter countermeasures. Yeah. Sure. If it's not too personal, what would you consider to be your biggest mistake? Yeah, my biggest mistake. Um, the biggest mistake when I engage with people uh, to overwhelm people with information. Yeah. <laughs> so when I when I worked at Accenture, yeah, it's, uh, and when you work in, in let's say in a corporate and they do their change change mindset leadership development programs, it's always about active listening. Yeah. And that's a big mistake in a lot of conversations. You would like to share your knowledge and you have so much passion and then to, not to do enough active listening yeah? because you're not passionate enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big mistake. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, who would you consider to be your favorite scientist of all time? Yeah, so I like Lou Landau. So Lou Landau was a physicist and um, he was a brilliant physicist. And he, um, I think he was in the same league as Einstein and Heisenberg. Um, he died, I think, um, around his 50s. But um, he didn't come up with very brilliant physical theories only. Um, he lived in the Soviet Union and he was also a very good educator. Yeah, he wrote excellent books. 
I think he wrote them around 1950 uh, or 19, yeah, around this time. And um, so when I studied f uh, physics, there was still world class books, yeah, and uh, fantastic from an educational perspective. And um, so I, yeah, I like, I like the, sure. the guy. <laughs> How are you occupying yourself in self quarantine? Yeah, basically, um, I'm living in a house that was built by my grandfather. Oh, wow. And this was a house for three generations. So I lived there with my grandparents, with my parents and myself. And then, um, yeah, six years ago, I renovated it. And now I'm, so I yeah. have the fortune to, to live in this house. And this is so we, we bought a lot of stuff. We have a lot of food here. So it's all fine. But for I have two kids, and for them it's fantastic because they have some some place inside the house to build their Lego, yeah. and then to go in the garden and to play a bit of football, and that's so that's quite okay. Yeah. And you're so working a lot also, as well. I see. And my wife is also working from home. Uh, she's working in critical infrastructure. She's working for a bank, and um, yeah, as we all work at home, it's, so we can organize it a bit. Yeah, that's good. So that's all I have in terms of questions, but I want to make sure if you have anything else maybe I missed you want to cover and tell the audience. So I, I would like to share with the audience a bit bit of an insight because I mentioned this ecosystem innovation, ecosystem leadership, and um, for a lot of, and then decentralized technology comes on top of it. Decentralized technology is built upon distributed ownership. It's built upon collaboration. And um, a lot of people have problems with this yeah, because they're used to write patterns and then to develop a business model and technology and to fully own it. And I think a lot of people who are infected by the, let's say, by the passion for, for, for decentralized technology and solutions, I think they're totally fine. But for all the other people that are kind of, let's say, tipping their toe in this, into this water, they suddenly have to think about... Um, coming up with a business model, but to share it, which is very dilutive, to share the knowledge and to engage with other people, even it's fully unknown, fully unclear what the business model is, what the business case is, and who gets which share of the um, of the business value that's created there and who owns it. And I think all these questions um, have to be put aside and people need to get comfortable with really engaging with the unknown. Um, it's unclear what the business model really is. Um, um, it's unclear who owns what, but I think it's pretty clear that this technology, this blockchain or without blockchain, Jeremy Rifkin is talking about a zero margin uh, economy. Yeah? So what does it mean? Who's making money? Is this hell on earth? Yeah? But I think we, we, we all have to be extremely kind of, let's say, make ourselves com comfortable to engage with the unknown which is the business model is not 100% clear. In addition, it's also super important um, to also consider sustainability, circularity, to combine the power of technology um, to solve all the other problems um, um, that we are facing for the planet. And this leads me to my other thing. I mentioned the US Drug uh, Supply Chain Security Act about serialization, auditability, about all the medical... Uh, packages, for example, and that's that's a very that's a very important insight, at least from from my perspective. It's about serialization, auditability, digital identity, electronic product information, you name it. And the 
main objective Vices was designed to have this full traceability was um, patient safety uh, to protect the health of the patients that people cannot kind of put poison in a, in a pharmaceutical supply chain. But what's what's a very big insight? You have um, serialization, you have auditability of the entire life cycle of a product, you have auditability, verifiability of your counterparties. And if you think beyond pharmaceuticals, that's exactly what we need for a circular economy. Yeah. In circular economy, you have to design out waste, we have to reuse, we have to recycle, we have to fully understand what's the provenance, what's the provenance of the plastic, is this biosource plastic, biodegradable plastic, can I really reuse the material, was it kind of uh, sourced via responsible sourcing and all this kind of stuff. And that's extremely interesting because if I deploy now technology, serialization technology for pharmaceutical use case, and I can kind of transfer this technology to solve problems in the circular economy, I personally believe we have, we have to put a shitload of regulation in place to really transition to circular economy from renewable energy to designing out ways to reuse. I have to put the regulations in place. And that's, I mentioned, I expect more regulations. So this will for sure come to save our planet. Um, um, so when this regulation is in place, I have to enforce it, I have to audit it, and then this technology plays a role. And all the lessons learned around serialization, the pharmaceutical sector, will play a, a dramatic, a significant role to bring serialization to circular economy and to be able to, to measure compliance with, uh, with regulatory um, requirements for, circular, for circularity and um, to really have a big impact um, on saving um, our planet here. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's very insightful. Thank you for sharing that. And I was thinking about regulation a bit more. And you're right, I do think there will be more regulation, but we need to, our regulation needs to be aligned with the technology. I feel like our regulation is always behind technology. So I think that's going to be the yeah. challenge of our generation yeah. <laughs> as well. Maybe I would like to share another insight. And that's when, when it comes to renewable energy. So in the States, um, you have a renewable, as it was, you, you can do double spend. Yeah, You get the renewable energy certificate in one state and then you can sell it in multiple states because systems have not yet been so super integrated i think they fixed it somehow uh, somehow and then you have this double spend and if you kind of tokenize on the blockchain then you can avoid double spend because it's the basic idea of bitcoin and this how the two are connecting right. and but this 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 the entire thing of co2 certificates yeah renewable energy certificates is not yet solved we have to put technology in place to really solve it on a global on a global level which means i have renewable energy certificates in norway i would like to sell it to italy this needs to be interoperable i have to do this but the next insight is okay we, we cannot stop let's say at the emission of the power plants that's what's called in the european union full disclosure they would like to go to full disclosure of uh, energy emissions and then i have to think about energy emissions in manufacturing and transport in mobility in some other sectors and then suddenly I, i'm in urgent need of an interoperable portable technology and that's that's the promise of decentralized technology that's um yeah that's being fulfilled here and where we see a lot of um, yeah, good things going on in the near future. Karsten, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. I think this was super insightful, and I hope the audience thinks so as well. You know, you, you shared a lot, so I think it's, it's great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Ray. Thanks for having me on your show. Um, I'm very proud and looking forward to stay in touch. Awesome. All the best to you and your audience um, during the corona pandemic. Stay healthy. 
Hey all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.